0: All right, were you guys ready for the word this morning? Amen. Hallelujah. Well, last week we found ourselves with Jesus as he kind of snuck up to the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So you remember that uh, he uh, two weeks ago he told everybody that he didn't want to go there publicly, and then once they all went as a big group, he kind of went by himself, and then he found himself in the temple and he began to preach, and uh, his teaching just like it, it has been pretty much nonstop, began to divide the people, and they began to wonder, is this the Messiah or not? Some of them began to believe, and some of them were, were pushing back against them and say, surely this can't be the, 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 the Messiah. Surely this can't be the Christ. And they had all these reasons why it couldn't be. And today we're going to see that continuation of that same story because once again, Jesus is going to make another bold claim. How many know that Jesus made a lot of bold claims? And how many know that every single time it got the, uh, the Pharisees all uptight and upset and the Sadducees and all the religious authorities? You see, it's going to happen again today. And once again, not only at this point, all the authorities, at least most, of the authorities at this point, pretty much hate him. They want him dead. But he's also dividing the people, the Jews that are listening to him. And and, uh, he makes this bold claim once again. And we see that division happening. And uh, let's go ahead and get started. In verse 37, as we continue in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tents, or you'll hear all different kinds of names for it, but this is where the Jews celebrated how God protected the people when they were wandering in the wilderness, and they would normally set up booths or tents, and they would stay in those tents, and, and, uh, but during this feast, there were several rituals that were performed all throughout the week. And one that was performed every single day was a priest would go out with a golden pitcher and he would, there was a, like this solemn procession. They would make their way down to the, uh, from the temple to the spring, the, it's called the, the Gaihon Spring. And they would fill that water, and then the water would bring it back to the temple. And all the while they were walking there, when they were walking back, they were actually singing this from Isaiah uh, chapter 12, verse 3. It says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this happened every day of the week during this feast. They would make the procession down there. They would fill the water, and then they would come back. When they came back, the priest would then pour the water out on the altar. And this was, uh, uh, one of the things this was an expression of was when God provided water from the rock through Moses. You guys remember that? You know, it's funny, we were just talking about that yesterday at the men's meeting and, and uh, how we envision these things, you know, and, and even in, in remembrance they're just pouring out a water pitcher. But how many know that they had to feed or, or water over a million people when he hit that rock? That wasn't a, that wasn't a like a, a bubbler you found in school. That was like a torrent of water to have enough to, to go ahead and feed those or, or water those people. And 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 they in remembrance of that, because that was a great miracle. That was God providing for them. This was one of the things they did in, in, in remembrance of that event. This water being poured out was also um, a prophetic uh, symbol of, of, of Christ and, and the Messiah. These all pointed towards the Messiah. In Zechariah 14:8, it says, "On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Easter sea, Eastern Sea, and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter." so now we're we're here, Jesus has been at the temple probably this entire time he's preaching to them, but now we're on the last day and and this the, the scripture says this last day of the feast is called the great day and on this last day um one of the 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 commentaries that I was reading said that that on this last day they actually didn't do this this pitcher ritual they didn't do this this water ritual and uh so you have to imagine this picture. The whole week, they've been going to get the water. They're singing the, song, the songs and the praise to God. Or they're pouring the water out. But on the last day, when no water has been poured out, when, if you're astute, if there's no water, there would be, there'd be nothing to drink. There. You know, this, this symbolism, this picture, you know, it's like the water's dried up, the water's gone. And, and, and Jesus, on this last greatest day of the festival, he stands up and he cries out with a live voice. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he stands up, and, and uh, this is in contrast to how the, the rabbis would have really been teaching in those days, right? Back then, right? They were too dignified to stand up and cry out, to stand up. So they, they taught from a seated position. So now we have Jesus standing up, and he's crying out. He's getting their attention. It looks different than they're used to. He was letting them know how important what he was about to say was going to be. He didn't want them to miss it. So he stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And this idea of coming and drinking, it points to a, a, comic, a common um, a theme in, in the prophetic uh, utterances of the, of the prophets of the past, particularly when they're regarding the, the, in, in reference to the Messiah, and here's just a few of them in Isaiah 12:2 through three, it says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, right? That's what they were actually singing with the picture. He's, he's, he's now making and this as a reference to me. Isaiah forty four three through four for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants they will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams Isaiah fifty eight eleven says and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire and scorch places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters. Do not fail. This idea of water, and we're going to see that, that John even explains is referring to the Spirit of God being poured out on them, but it's this idea of watering, and it's a, it's, it all points to the Messiah, and Jesus is saying, here I am, that's me. Jesus, this day, is offering every single person who is listening salvation. And then he goes on to say, And then whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, it's interesting because Jesus says, as the scripture has said, but there's actually no real verse that actually says this in the scripture. But if you know anything about teaching in those days, like we're real big on quoting scripture accurately, as it said, because the truth is, is that many people that are attending church, I could just make up a scripture. I'll tell you it was from second hesitations, and uh, most people would just believe it. But they knew the scripture back then, right? So if you said, this is what the scripture says, and, and you weren't actually paraphrasing the scripture, they would call you out on it. They knew what was in the scripture. So Jesus, like most of the teachers back then, they didn't quote often. They, they often just paraphrase or, in their own words, said what the scripture says. And, and that's what he's saying here, and he's more than likely... Referring to either some of the verses I've already read to you today, or Psalm 78:16 is another one. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. Um, we just talked about the one in, in Isaiah fifty-eight eleven being watered like a garden. Could have been a reference to Zechariah fourteen eight, which I read earlier, which was that on on that day living water shall flow from Jerusalem. So Jesus is paraphrasing all of these 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 scriptures that point to the Messiah when he's making these 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 uh, these statements. But as I read this and I try to imagine what is being said here, it says out of his heart will flow rivers of living water right so whoever believes in him whoever actually comes to him and drinks whoever comes to him and receives from him and like i said as john says in a moment we're talking about the holy spirit here if you receive this spirit then out of you out of your heart is going to flow rivers of, of living water now how how would it work for that to flow out of you now you think about that if you have a pitcher of water and, and and you put water in it, what happens? It fills up with water. But what happens when you have <laughs> he's okay, don't worry. Hallelujah. He was just raising his hand, he was gonna tell he was gonna answer the question. So <laughs> <laughs> So the, the, what I picture in my head is that, that when we come to you, you're so overflowed, you're, you're so filled up with what he has to give, it begins to overflow out of you. Like a pitcher, if you just fill it to the top, it stops. But if you keep pouring, if, if the source is so abundant, then you're going to have an overflow out of it. You know, when we come to Jesus, he doesn't just give us enough, he gives us more than enough. And, and what he gives us will overflow out of us. And in this case, he's speaking of the spirit. When the spirit becomes inside of you, it should be overflowing out of you. The spirit of God, the love of God should be overflowing out of you towards others. Amen. So and I already gave you the spoiler on this, but in John, in the next, the next verse, John says, Now this he said about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John goes ahead and clarifies what he's speaking about, and this is good. I like when the Bible clarifies stuff for us, so that way we don't have to be confused. And and uh, really, he's he's wanted to make sure that the the readers of this of this letter are are understanding what he's trying to say. And really, it's for us too today. You know, uh, how many know that when when. Uh, Uh, God had this stuff written down. He was thinking about us today too so that we could hear this word. So this is for our benefit as well so we can understand because so many people hear what Jesus is saying and they got confused. Matter of fact, that seems to be a common theme over and over and over when Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people as they they don't understand what he's saying. He says one thing and they they just take it a completely different way. So John didn't want us to get confused in this case. This is what he's talking about. And the reality is, is to be honest... The people that are hearing this, they're kind of at a disadvantage <laughs> that we don't have. We're already past the day when the Spirit's been given. We know what he's talking about. But at this point, the Spirit's not even been given. So they, 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 they really are, are struggling to know with what he's talking about. And but the Spirit hasn't been given. Now, this isn't to say that the Holy Spirit didn't exist or the Holy Spirit wasn't active before this time. You, you don't have to read that far in the Old Testament to know the Holy Spirit was active. But the difference is, is the Holy Spirit wasn't indwelling in each and every one of us like He is now. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to, to live inside of you. And, and actually, and based on what John is saying here, I think that uh, the only conclusion that I can come to is that he's not actually talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you get born again, but he's actually talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and let me tell you why when you believe at that moment the Holy Spirit comes to take residence inside of you this is a different event than being baptized in the Holy Spirit which happened for the the Christians at this time this happened at at Pentecost and the reason why we know it's two different events is because while jesus was still on earth he had already died he had been rose from the dead but you remember for some time he was still among them before he was glorified it was during that time when he came back that he breathed on the disciples and said receive the holy spirit this is how we receive the holy spirit and salvation but if you if you know your your bible you know that 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 the Holy Spirit doesn't actually come to the people to rest on the people, to, 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 that this baptism of the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost, because Jesus said, I must go now, I'll send another, and power will come upon you. You guys remember that. So the Holy Spirit was given in salvation before Jesus ascended to heaven, but then the Holy Spirit was given again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, happened after Jesus ascended. Well, what does this say here? The spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was glorified when he ascended. That was when he was done. So it seems to me, if I just do some simple math, Jesus is talking. this is talking about after Jesus was glorified. So this, this idea of, of being filled with the spirit that it would flow out of you, that you would overflow, is, is in reference to the event that happens after you're saved. And when you have, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And you remember, it was a pretty awesome event in the the book of Acts, right? They heard like a sound, like rushing wind, and then, then the Holy Spirit rested upon them and gave them tongues like fire, and they began to speak in other tongues, and they began to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe that that whoever believes, who has already given their life to Christ, each and every one of them should receive the Spirit in that same manner as Jesus has promised it to him. He has promised if you come to drink to him, out of your heart will flow rivers where you'll be overflowing with his Spirit. And the reality is is that that we're a a church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then the Scripture says you only need to ask. The Bible says that if... uh, if a if a if a a child asks a dad for something to eat, would he give him a rock? Of course not. Well, how much more so will God give greater gifts to those who ask of Him? So, if you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit and you'd like to, I love to pray with you. We'll just ask God, and and the Scripture says, "You ask, He'll you'll receive," and and He is faithful. Amen. 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 Well, in John, because we continue on and and in, in verse forty through forty-two, it says, "When they heard these words, some of the people said." This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So once again, Jesus makes a very bold claim. And now the crowd's getting all uppity. They're beginning to argue, who is this guy that's saying those things? They begin to question his identity once again. And Jesus, as Jesus spoke, they begin to ask, is this really the prophet, the prophet that Moses had spoken of? And that's in Deuteronomy 15 and also verse 18. It says, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And verse 18, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they're asking is this really the prophet when they're talking about the prophet this is the prophet they're talking about they're talking about the messiah and we find out in the book of acts that that peter says that jesus is this prophet so we we know in hindsight that this is the prophet but they're wondering they're confused and others said is this really the prophet but then others says you no know, is this the christ and some of them Uh, actually said this is the Christ so some are believing some are not believing they're hearing his words and they're becoming divided some are going yes and some are going no and the thing is is they knew the scripture they knew they said listen doesn't it say that the that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and he comes from Bethlehem so first the Messiah would come from the offspring of David. Both Samuel and Isaiah had prophesied this. You can read Samuel, say it in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, and Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 1. And Micah had also prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So they, they have the scripture right. I want to know that sometimes you can have the scripture right, but if you misunderstand the stuff behind it, if you misunderstand the reality of your situation, you're going to to miss the point. See, the thing is, is they they knew that that the the Messiah would come from the line of David. They knew the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. They just didn't know that Jesus fulfilled both of those requirements. You see, first Jesus was from the Davidic line you can read the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke to verify this you can follow it all the way back the genealogy all the way back to Adam actually and then God and uh, it's interesting if you've ever read the genealogies how many guys know that they're actually different the one in Luke and the one in Matthew are actually different. There's been uh, a lot of, of explanations as to why this could have been, but probably the more more than likely the simplest one is the one in Matthew is following the line back from from Joseph, and the one in Luke is following the back the line back from Mary because Luke actually knew that uh, it was it was Joseph was yeah he even mentions it his supposed father Joseph. <laughs> What's interesting to me is it doesn't matter if you follow back from Mary or you follow back from Joseph, both of them are in the Davidic line. God, would, it's almost like God was smart about this stuff, and He's like, you know what? We're not going to leave any confusion. <laughs> it's almost like He knew what He was doing. Hallelujah. So here's the thing: the people, though, they just thought He was from Galilee, so they were either ignorant of the reality of the situation, or they're just ignoring the facts. I don't, that's the thing is, we don't, really have, we don't know if they knew these things about Jesus or not. So they're either ignorant or they're, they're ignoring the facts that Jesus actually satisfies both of these requirements for being from the place that the Messiah was supposed to come because he came from both being born in Bethlehem and also being in the Davidic line. And so once again, there was a division among the people over him. Verse 43, verse 44 says, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. It's funny how often people wanted to seize Jesus, wanted to arrest Jesus, like over and over and over again. But uh, the interesting thing is, is this, this indecisiveness, this division in the crowd actually keeps them from actually arresting him. Because if somebody did try, the people that supported him would probably be up in arms for trying to take who they believed to be the Messiah or the prophets. And also, in addition to this, many of the people, even if they didn't commit to him, even if they didn't follow him, they still approved of him. And so they would have been upset if somebody would have, would have uh, went after him, because they didn't think poorly of him, even if maybe they didn't fully believe that he was the Messiah, so as a result, anytime somebody wanted to arrest them, they had to be careful because as you know, when Jesus spoke, large crowd gathered, and, and, and you don't really want to have two people fighting each other. They didn't want a riot on their hands. And we're actually going to see as we progress through this gospel, both in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, we're going to see this same thing happen again. They become divided over Jesus, and some of them want to arrest him, and What's interesting to me is this is now the third time in this chapter that they wanted to arrest him, but they have not, <laughs> right? The first time the people wanted to, were up in arms over him, and they wanted to, to do the citizen's arrest, right? They wanted to seize him, and then we sent the temple guards, and the temple guards show up, and they're supposed to arrest him, and that doesn't happen, and now we're here. They're, they're getting all upset again at what he's saying, and, and uh, he's not arrested again. And, and we know this is because it wasn't yet his time. You see, God had a plan for when Jesus would be arrested and ultimately killed, but the timing was not right yet, so Jesus remained free, able to teach. And this is interesting to me because when I look at this, because on one hand, it says many, uh, a couple times that Jesus left an area so he wouldn't be arrested or so he wouldn't be killed because it wasn't yet his time. And then there are times like this where he doesn't, and it says that their attempts failed because it wasn't yet his time. You know, when he, when he was asked to go publicly to this temple right now, he says, no, I can't go yet, it's not my time. But then he goes anyway, and then because it's not their time, they don't arrest him. And it, it got me thinking, and, and uh, it seems to me that when God has a plan for your life, if you do things according to his will, according to his purpose, if you're obedient to him, then God will make sure that his plan is enacted in your life, right? That's what happened here. Jesus is being obedient to what God wants from him. he's following his plan and because of that even when they wanted to arrest him they couldn't do it but Jesus also recognizes that if he decides to do it his own way different than the plan of God if he would have stayed when he should have went or if he would have went uh, to the temple publicly when he sh- when he wasn't supposed to he he seems to bring up that that if I you know I can't do this because it's not yet my time because he understood that if he went in that way then they would have seized him. They would have overcome the hurdles and, and it would have, it would have uh, uh, impacted God's plan for his life. It wouldn't have happened in the timing. So it seems to me that if you're being obedient, God will make a way, but if, you're, if we want to do things our own way, then sometimes we can mess with the plan of God. Amen? So I think we should take a, a, a Jesus as our example and let's just be obedient to God. Amen? Move when he says move. Stay when he says stay. Hallelujah. And then in verse 45, it says, the officers then came to the chief priests and to Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So you remember, these are the officers that we talked about last week. These are the ones that the Pharisees and the, the religious authorities had sent out to arrest Jesus. And they went and obviously they heard him because they, they, it says no one ever spoke like this man. So they were at least close enough to hear him speak and then they showed back up empty-handed. Now the Pharisees and the authorities are a little bit ticked off about this and they're like, hey, listen, why have you returned empty-handed? Didn't we give you orders? Didn't we give you something to do? The chief priests and Pharisees, they wanted an answer as to why these, these uh, Roman guards, did not, or the, sorry, not Roman guards, the temple guards did not do what they were supposed to do. And the reason was is because they understood or at least sensed that there was something more to this man, Jesus. More than what the, the rulers or the Pharisees saw, they understood there was something more. He says, listen, no one has ever spoke like this man. And, and like I said, the, the these aren't Roman soldiers. These are the temple guard. They're more than likely not Roman soldiers. But because even though while Rome ruled in this area... Uh, and in this zone they did give certain freedom to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish religious leaders to manage their own affairs particularly religious affairs so that's why they had their own temple guard they send them to listen to Jesus and and so they probably showed up and were listening to Jesus trying to find a a legitimate reason to arrest him and it's interesting to me they came looking for a reason to arrest him but instead they get impacted by the words of Jesus and instead, it changes their whole thinking. They're impacted by their words. And he comes back, no one has ever spoke like this man. Or the other option is they got there, saw the entire crowd, and this is just an excuse not to cause a riot, and they came back empty-handed. I imagine a little of both, if I'm being honest. So then in verse 47, it says, The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see, the Pharisees didn't accept this as an excuse. So they said, wait a minute. You're coming back here saying this man speaks amazing. Have you not also been deceived just like the rest of them? They believed that anybody who could support Jesus, anybody that would follow Jesus, anybody that would listen to his words and come away with any other opinion than he should be killed, they must be deceived. And their argument was this. Listen, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or have any of the Pharisees believed in him? Have they believed what he was saying? You see, because here's the argument. If none of the authorities or the Pharisees believed it, then it couldn't possibly be true. Like, Listen, we're, we're the ones that, that, that know everything. We know the law. If we don't believe it, it can't possibly be true. So anybody else who does believe it, they're being Deceived. And the funny thing is, is that if it's not true already, which it might be, but if it's not true already, then very soon many authorities and Pharisees are going to believe in Jesus. And John twelve forty two, just five chapters more, it says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they didn't get put out of the synagogue. So we already know that many authorities were going to believe. In John 19, 38 through 39, this is after these things, Joseph of, of Arimathea, who was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fears of Jews, asked uh, Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he came to support Jesus after Nicodemus believed. If he doesn't believe now, he, already, he is going to believe in the future. So this statement is actually quite ignorant on behalf of the Pharisees because, like I said, if they don't believe already, it's going to happen very soon. And, and how many know that this argument kind of falls apart if, anybody, <laughs> if any of them begin to believe? But this says, you know what? Maybe the, maybe the crowds believe Jesus. But the Pharisees, you know, we know the law and we don't believe in it. And, and the reason why these people are being deceived is because they just don't know the law well enough. They just don't know it good enough. So that's why that they're accursed. And I find this quite interesting because every time the, the Bible describes the Jewish people listening to Jesus, their reasons for thinking he is or isn't the Messiah, they're always using Scripture. It seems to me that they know the Scripture pretty well. Matter of fact, they keep using over and over the law for the foundation of, of their arguments. Even if they don't understand Jesus' background, so they're misapplying the law, they're still using the law. So it seems like that they, these guys actually know the law. And it's it's funny to me because in this case, because of their ignorance, or potentially because of their ignorance, they're in a better position to receive the truth that Jesus is sharing with them. And we see this today as well, right? Particularly in the United States, we, we live our entire life being told that science can explain everything. And as an aside, I actually believe that science can explain everything, because all science is, is describing the rules and the laws that God set up. So in a sense, yes, it can, because we're just describing what, what God has already put in motion. But in the sense that it is our authority, it's wrong, Right? And people think that, no, science is the way, nothing happens without, without a, a cause, and, and, uh, uh, and, and in that case, then there, there can't be miracles, there can't be anything supernatural because science can't explain it, right? So all of these things, so because we have this idea in our head, because we're, we're so smart, I believe that's why we don't see as many miracles in the United States as you see in other countries where they're still welcome to the supernatural. We've been told our whole life that it can't happen and it's no wonder we started to believe that. We've actually started to, to, to uh, um, operate in unbelief when it comes to those things because what we've been told our entire life, we're unwilling to accept the supernatural, responding in disbelief, and ultimately we limit the work of God in our life when we do that. Jesus' lack of miracles in his own hometown are an example of this. Why couldn't Jesus do a lot of miracles? Because of their disbelief. They had already made up their mind. Their disbelief actually limited the ability of God to work in their lives. I want to be clear. We can't limit the ability of God to work generally, but we can limit the ability of God to work in our lives when we don't trust him. And that's what happened in Jesus' hometown. So it seems to me that you ever guys ever heard the expression, you're too smart for your own good? Yeah. I think that kind of applies here. These Pharisees were too smart for their own good and they were missing it because they had already made a decision. And they pointed fingers at the crowd claiming they were deceived when in fact, it was them who were deceived. And then in John 7, 50 through 51, here's Nicodemus again. Nicodemus who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, and it was one of them, so Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. He said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So as the Pharisees are rebuking the temple guards, they're chewing on them saying, hey, are you yet deceived as well? Um, uh, Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, steps in and he he begins to to push back against the other Pharisees. And Nicodemus is the one who had already gone and spoke to Jesus earlier in the gospel. He's the one, you can read about it in chapter three, but he's the one that found out that you must be born again. And uh, uh, the irony of the situation that's happening here is that Moments before, the Pharisees claimed that none of the the other Pharisees believed in Jesus. Now, Nicodemus, if he isn't already starting to, we know in the future he is going to believe in Jesus. I read you the scripture just a couple moments ago, and uh, but this Nicodemus, who who actually I think is starting to believe in Jesus, um. He's the one that provided the spices for Jesus. He's there and he's watching the other Pharisees argue with the guards about how the crowd doesn't know the law. So Nicodemus reminds them that the law that they claim to know so well requires that they give Jesus a hearing. You know, it's funny. That's how hypocrisy sneaks into our life, is when we selectively apply the things that we know. So here, they're, they're all about the law, and these people are being deceived, but when it comes to the law about, about giving a person a hearing, they didn't want to hear it about Jesus. You see, in Deuteronomy 116, we find that an accused person must be heard before a judge. Deuteronomy 1.16 says, Then I charge your judges at the time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. This is what their law said that they were supposed to be doing, but this is in direct contrast to what the Pharisees wanted. You see, they hated Jesus and they wanted him dead. They didn't want a trial. They didn't want to have him be able to share his case to explain. They just wanted him dead, probably because he was beginning to encroach into their area of influence and authority. So then they fire back at Nicodemus. In verse 52, it says, They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So these proud Pharisees, they wouldn't even listen to one of their own who was just repeating the law back to them that they should have known. And instead of using wisdom and listening to Nicodemus, they instead choose to insult them. Their hatred for Jesus is so strong that it impedes their ability to, to use reason. You know, we see that all the time with people in the world today. Their maybe not their hatred for Jesus, but their love for what they're doing in the world impedes their ability to see reason. See, the thing is, is that not only does it impede their ability to see reason, but it also highlighted that they weren't really devoted to the law, only their own desires. Because if they were devoted to the law, they would have repented immediately. Notice the difference of one who screws up but repents. This is David, a, God, a man after God's own heart. When he was confronted with his sin, when he basically had Beth's, uh, Bathsheba's husband killed and because he was with her, when he's confronted with this sin, what does David do? He immediately repents. He immediately recognizes what he did was wrong and he repented. In contrast, the Pharisees, they hear what the word of God says. Instead of repenting of what they're doing, they just keep going on with their own desires instead of following God's word. So they sarcastically say to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search this and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're basically saying, what, are you one of those pathetic and lowly Galileans as well? It's kind of the old, uh, and you've probably seen people do it, they can't contend with the argument, so they attack the arguer. That's basically what's happening here. They knew that they didn't have a leg to stand on because they were ignoring the law, so instead they began to attack him. And it's funny because it's like they're going to prove their point by saying, you know what, are you one of the Galileans too? They insult him and say, you know, go search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they're supposed to know the, the, the law. They know the law, and they know that there's no prophet that arises from Galilee. Why don't you go look and see for yourself? And this is ironic to me because the problem is they don't know the law as well that they, as well that they thought. Because if they just mean any prophet, so, and it's not real clear, but let's just say they're talking about any prophet, go and see that no prophet ever comes from Galilee. Well, Jonah and Elijah both come from that area. So now we've got two prophets that are from there. So, not, so, so that's not right. Well, then you can say, well, maybe they're talking about the prophet that Moses was talking about, and if they're specifically referring to the prophet that Moses spoke about, then they would only, then they should know that the that the the prophet from uh, this prophet from Galilee was born in in Bethlehem. They should know that the prophet. That they're pointing to to the say they can't be the prophet Jesus, that he was born in Bethlehem, exactly where Micah prophesied that the Messiah would come from. In addition, Isaiah says this about the Messiah. And Isaiah 9:1 through 2 it says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee. Of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Not only does the scripture say that that the, the the prophet that Moses was speaking about is coming from Bethlehem, which also Jesus came from. The scripture also says in Isaiah that that the Messiah would be a light to Galilee. The problem is, is it seems that their pride and hatred for Jesus was so strong that it wouldn't let them see the truth. You know, that's one of the things that Jesus always got on to the religious leaders for being hypocrites because they were just concerned with what they wanted and they applied the law as they saw fit. But church, the reality is, is that every argument they made, Jesus had a counter because he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And, uh, You know, I would encourage all of us to be careful that we're not selectively applying Scripture in our life as well. Amen.